whiz kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Radio legend, controversial, outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Landy. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? We're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us, and that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will, that'll come with, you know, in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop, Dal Maxville to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the men's basketball committee for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and 
and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunbold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary, and John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA. Tim Donahue joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deere visiting with us, the Hall of Famer, and, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song? Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans. And one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie, was head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengals guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. And a good Monday afternoon, St. Louis, at all points, north, east, south, and west. We welcome you in. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court, on kevinslaytonshow.com. We'll hear the podcast, of course, later on on this website here. Also on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Anchor, and any place else. That you listen to podcasts. Well, we've got about a little over 24 hours left before the trade deadline ends at 5 o'clock tomorrow. Used to be July 31st, but they've changed it. And so here we sit. It'll be 5 o'clock our time, central time, tomorrow. So a lot of time still to get things done. There are some minor moves that have taken place so far today. But we're going to get into that. We're going to also get into uh, hearing from John Mozeliak on the Cardinal deals from yesterday where they acquired two pitchers and an infielder from the Texas Rangers. And then they got two pitchers from the Toronto Blue Jays, all minor league players except for John King, who's a left-handed pitcher that the Cardinals will no doubt stick in their bullpen. And we're going to get into the whys behind those deals. And I, I think if the Cardinals are thinking like I'm thinking, these are good moves, and I'll tell you why I'm thinking the way I am. However, past history tells me they're not thinking like I am, and so they won't do what I suggest. And if they did, it would be a very big-time beneficial move. But I worry about them, as I always do. We'll hear from Adam Wainwright on his last appearance, which was Saturday night when he lost to the Cubs. Got bombed around again, four runs in six innings. He thought he pitched great. So did Ali Marmol. This is part of the Cardinals' problem. 
They can't evaluate anything. And so how are we to know about these prospects they got from Texas and Toronto? Are they any good? Based on Cardinal on the Cardinals' most recent history of the last six, seven, eight years, they're not any good. They just got someone else's baggage and gave away some decent players. It's it's perplexing as to the Cardinals being so bad at evaluating talent. And when you keep talking about Wainwright pitching so well when he gives up four earned runs in six innings and it could have been worse, saved by the double play ball several times, then I just want to tune them out. So we'll get into a little bit of that as well as we go along. The biggest name that has changed uniforms so far is Max Scherzer, the St. Louisan, who went over to the Texas Rangers from the Mets. And that's interesting because Scherzer's going to get a chance to be in the postseason. He hasn't been brilliant in the postseason. He's one of those guys, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along, that hasn't been a great postseason player. Now, he does have a ring. He was with the 2019 Washington Nationals when they beat the Astros in seven games. He started game six, but that World Series belonged to Steven Strasburg. He's the guy that won it for the Nationals. He pitched the great game in game seven, although some real questionable managing by um, Houston in that game to, to take Zach Greinke out when he should not have come out. But nonetheless, we're going to um, analyze the deal for Scherzer because that gives the Rangers a, a big-time name and a big-time pitcher. The Rangers were active at the deadline. They want to win. They've got a two-game or one or two-game lead over the uh, Astros right now. The Astros just lost two out of three to Tampa over the weekend, but the Astros are healthy. Jose Altuve came back. Jordan Alvarez came back. Both hit home runs. Both had multiple hits. Altuve had a triple, a single, a home run that I know of. So they've got a healthy lineup for the first time all year. They're still missing Michael Brantley, and he may not play all year. Might be ready for the playoffs. So the Astros finally have a healthy lineup. They acquired a Graveman from the White Sox, a relief pitcher, and a good one. The Astros, in fact, had him a couple of years ago. He walked in free agency, and now they got him back. I don't think they're done. So let's talk about all of this baseball stuff as we go along our featured interview as we go into the King's Vault today will be Tim Donahue, a former NBA referee who was busted for betting on NBA games, in fact was sentenced to prison where he was beaten up, wrecked his knee while he was in prison, and then he wrote a book called Foul Ball or Foul Play and um, exposed the NBA for the corrupt enterprise it is and David Stern for the waffling weasel that he always was. So you'll hear from Tim Donahue talking about that and, of course, the way they treated David Sterling, the owner of the L.A. Clippers, a few years back. That's all still to come. Our great fans, our friends at Monster Energy Drink, have one right ready for you right this very second. It's humid out in the Midwest. It's hot. You want to keep your focus in meetings. It's Monday, so you're not going to be awake. You need a push. You need a boost. And Monster Energy can deliver that punch of energy that you need. It's the most badass energy drink on the planet. And that's because it's not just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can. I have to play golf with some sponsors of the show late this week. I will have Monster Energy drink on hand in the bags as we play. Monster Energy, unleash the beast in you. Well, let's examine um, the trades that have been made so far. 
The Cardinals, as I mentioned, traded Jordan Montgomery, their their best pitcher this year, to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers got Montgomery, and they got Scherzer. Remember, they traded for Jacob DeGrom in the offseason with the Mets, and DeGrom got hurt. So next year, they could have Scherzer, DeGrom, and Jordan Montgomery as their top three guys in their rotation. Wouldn't be too bad. Plus, they've got a couple of other ones who are having good years this year. The Rangers are really making moves. And they got Bruce Bochy as their manager. That's going to be a tough out for the Astros in that division, even though the Astros have their number when they play them. But Stratton and Montgomery go down to the Rangers for the Cardinals. Now, the um, I, I don't know if it's fascinating, but the Cardinals traded their strength, or excuse me, their weakness, but their best part of their weakness, which is pitching, Montgomery and Hicks. Now, you might originally say, wait a minute. What are you doing? It doesn't sound like a smart move, does it? No, it doesn't. So then what's going on here? Well, God only knows with the Cardinals. But when I look at these deals, I see the uh, Hicks and Montgomery deal especially as beneficial to the Cardinals. Now you say, well, why would you say that? Because they're both free agents. So if they're both free agents, right, and now all of a sudden you've got this team ready to go in the offseason, by by ready to go, I mean from a pitching standpoint, you could go back and sign these two guys. So what looks bad right out of the gate maybe isn't so bad. Because if you go back and sign Montgomery and Hicks, if you do that, then you just picked up players and gave up nothing. Now, that's my suggestion. You go back and you sign Montgomery and you sign Hicks. Those are the only two guys worth signing uh, in the Cardinal rotation or bullpen as free agents. You go back and you get them, and now you've kept your two best pitchers during during the offseason, and you've added young players. Now, I don't know how good they're going to be. Those players that they got, how good are they? God only knows with the Cardinals. Truthfully, who does know? (laughs) I mean, nobody. But if they do what I'm suggesting they do, then you've really made a hit because you're going to keep the players you traded and you're going to get the young players in return. So those are good things. Now, I don't know how good these players that they got in return are. Neither do they. Well, Zalok said that yesterday was an event as he described the moves that were made by the Cardinals yesterday afternoon. Today was an event. We, we, you know, moved three key players. Um, do I anticipate more to come? Probably. Uh, what do we have? Roughly 24 or 48 hours left in this. So, you know, we're going to just roll our sleeves back up after I leave here, kind of reassess where we are, um, might change some of our goals now because of what we were able to accomplish. And so we'll just talk through that this evening and then, you know, prep for tomorrow and, and Tuesday. Well, the last time they prepped, remember we had Bill DeWitt the third on the show 
about two months ago, and I asked him what Michael Gersh's role was in this Cardinal operation since he's listed as general manager. And Bill DeWitt third told me that Gersh prepares Mosellock for off-season acquisitions, the free agency. So I'm assuming he's also preparing him for trades on the trade deadline as we get through this. And if that's the case, who, who's the problem in the Cardinal hierarchy? Who cannot evaluate talent? The evidence clearly says Mosellock cannot. He's the guy that's given away Aroldis Garcia to the Rangers for cash. He's an all-star. He's going to drive in 120 runs. He's the guy that gave Randy Rosarina away to the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for Matthew Libertor, who's floundering in the minor leagues. Uh, Rosarina has MVP potential. He was also an all-star. In fact, those were the two corner outfielders for the American League starting in the all-star game. Mozilek's the guy who traded away Zach Gallen and uh, Sandy Alcantara to the Marlins in exchange for Marcelo Zuna. Ozuna is with the Braves struggling. Cardinals got nothing in return. He walked as a free agent. Alcantara's already won a Cy Young. Gallon's pitching great for the Arizona Diamondbacks. So four All-Stars and a Cy Young winner, and you got nothing in return. So we know Mosellock cannot evaluate talent. We don't know how good Sem Roberts is. We don't know how good Adam Klofenstein is. Those are the guys they got from the Blue Jays in return for Jordan Hicks. They're young, so that works in the Cardinals' favor. They've got a little time to develop them, but we already know what Jordan Hicks brings. I think Hicks was starting to work his way into being the closer the Cardinals thought he could be. Robert's the guy they got, is a, a guy who's from the Netherlands. He's only 21 years old, but he was a double-A pitcher. Um, who knows? Who knows? He's a 21-year-old relief pitcher, 4.06 earned run average in double-A. Um, he also started 18 games, so he could do either. You just don't know. But how good are these guys? Well, nobody knows because they're still a double-A. Kloffenstein is a 22-year-old right-hander. He has a 3.24 earned run average, 105 strikeouts in 89 innings. But he fell off the prospect radar with a terrible 2022 season. So those are the two guys they got from Toronto. Are they any good? Cardinals' track record says no. The Blue Jays, I say, get the big check mark there so far in the exchange for the deal. They've got a guy who's in their minor league, or excuse me, who's going to be right into their bullpen as their closer, Jordan Hicks, because their closer went down with an injury. So Hicks is now the closer for a Blue Jays team pushing for the playoffs. Hicks has to be happy with the deal. He can always come back if he wanted to. So we'll see if those guys are starters, are relievers, what they are. But the Cardinals needed pitching, and they got pitching. We could argue and debate whether they can evaluate pitching talents, but that's what they got. Mozilla talked about Sem Roberts. It's Sem, not Sam, S-E-M. Well, I think I think his actual mix is is, is interesting, right, because – He's not all swing and miss, but he uh, he's the strike thrower, um, does get ground balls. 
I think the the fact that that he's so young, he'll be able to go to AAA and be knocking on the door to the big leagues is exciting. And so we did look, we did spend a, a lot of time um, looking at that phrase "swing and miss." And and by doing so, we spent a lot of time trying to understand pitch quality and, and how that that might play into having more success in that. And so the pitchers that we did identify do fall into that to some level, and um, that does give them some uniqueness. But now, you know, we obviously got to get them into our system and see how things work. But you know, clearly, um, as we sit here today, just based on on our analysis, our scouting, you know, we feel pretty good about what we were able to acquire. And so Robert's is an exciting arm. He's an exciting arm. Most of that was techno talk, BS, that Moselec specializes in with that arrogance and that pomposity you can hear in his voice. But most of that meant nothing. What it really meant was I don't have any idea how to evaluate talent, so we'll hope these guys are good. In terms of the Ranger deal for trading Montgomery and Stratton, a Cardinal reliever, they get a pitcher by the name of Tekoa Roby. They say he's a top 100 prospect. No one knows what that means. He's supposed to be the main pickup in that deal. So Texas felt like they could get rid of him because they've now acquired a lot of pitching depth. We'll see. He uh, throws about a 95 to 96 mile an hour fastball. Don't know if that means anything. If it doesn't move, it doesn't. But apparently that's the key to his pitching arsenal. Has a good breaking ball, so they say. But again, these are things we just don't know. Um, The position player that they got is a guy by the name of, I don't know if I'm saying it right, Seguis, another second baseman, third baseman, career 299 minor league hitter. He leads the Texas League right now. Three, uh, 115 hits, a 314 average. That's fifth best in the Texas League. So what does he bring? I don't know. No one knows. It didn't sound like Moselock was exactly giving a ringing endorsement to these deals, though. I feel like like the group we got, though, really does have some upside. Um and, and in terms of like, you know, taking more of a, I don't know, is the phrase like a Hail Mary approach or something with that? I don't know if we're, we have to do that, but like that's always in sort of the way we think about things. Like, you know, Matt, you know, understanding like how much risk are we putting on one prospect? Uh, but we do feel like most of the players we got today, with the exception of the player rehabbing Roby, it's, you know, these guys are going to go out and compete right away and, and should have, some pathway to this organization at the major league level. It just didn't sound like a guy who's really fired up about the players that he got. I think part of that's because he has no idea how to evaluate. So he doesn't know. Roby, the pitcher that we talked about, uh, has a 5.05 earned run average. But that was before he got hurt. He's rehabbing. He won't even be able to pitch. He injured his shoulder. So we don't know about him. But leave it to the Cardinals to trade for a guy who's injured. So th- those are the deals that they've a- a- accumulated so far. Now, the worst news of the weekend is that Moselock said Nolan Arenado's not going anywhere. There were stories coming out that Arenado had set, gone ahead and waived his no-trade clause as long as it was to the Dodgers, his hometown team. 
and I'm thinking, oh, that's good news. Trade him. You'll get a lot for him. Trade Goldschmidt, you get a boatload for him. The Cardinals could have bagged a lot of young players, good young players for those two. But they're not going to move either one of them, it looks like. So you're going to be stuck with an aging Goldschmidt if you don't move him. And to me, that's just illogical not to trade him. And uh, Arenado, who's completely disinterested. But those are the Cardinals. Stunningly, Moselock said he actually liked his last place team. I mean, we like our club. I mean, like, look, we can we can point to everything, right? Bad luck, use excuses like WBC. We can injuries, whatever. But we we still believe it's a pretty good team. We really like our everyday club. Obviously, we got to sort through what the outfield is going to look like. We've got to resolve what that looks like um, and understand that. You, you know, in terms of like what our middle infield is going to look like next year, we we need to do that. But we think just like pure talent, pure production is real, and. When you look at, at at some of the things that have happened to us this year, we definitely feel like that's where the inconsistencies of, of just how we played overall came into effect. But we do think it's a team that's close. Um, it's not that much different than it was last year in terms of faces and names. But, you know, today we had to take the poison pill. We had to make changes, and they began. Pure talent and pure production is real, he said. He really likes this club. He likes their everyday lineup, their everyday players. Then he said, we've got to sort out outfield, middle infield. He didn't mention catcher because, remember, it's Moselock and Wainwright and Flaherty who didn't like the signing of Contreras, apparently, two weeks after the season started. So if you look at what the Cardinals have said, they have problems knowing who their outfielders are, who their middle infielders are, who their catcher is. And yet he says he really likes this team. He likes his team's everyday lineup, yet it doesn't have one 300-hitter in it. You start to get the the feeling that the real problem with the Cardinal organization has been and still is Moselock. And yet he talks as, as though he's a guy who has zero insecurity about his job. I've never seen a guy sit so securely in a high-profile job for a high-profile team in a high-profile professional sport that has no worries whatsoever about job security when his the team he puts together is awful. It's a stunning situation with the Cardinals. We'll probably never know the reason the Mosella, that the uh, DeWitts are so infatuated with this guy. But it is stunning. How do you keep saying you like this lineup? Good grief. You've got a 233 hitting shortstop. Yesterday you put out there a 158 hitting second baseman. Good Lord, a two thirty nine hitting first baseman because Goldschmidt DH'd. Goldschmidt's down to two eighty and falling. A two fifty four hitting cleanup hitter. You had a, a leadoff hitter who batted cleanup the other night. They have no idea where these guys are playing every night. They have no idea what position they're playing every day. And yet he really likes this team. <laughs> like him away. It is stunning. And one of the guys who likes himself a lot is Adam Wainwright. He pitched against the Cubs the other night. Four runs in the first four innings. He stuck around and pitched two more innings to make it look a little better. Six innings, four earned runs. Uh, But just so you know, that's a six earned run average. But Wainwright talked as though he had the best 
game of his life and that it was just bad luck. If he himself would have made a play, the Cubs wouldn't have scored a single run. How that logic translates is unbelievable because they hit two home runs off of him. Keep in mind, four earned runs in, in six innings, and he thinks one play turned the whole game around. I just uh, reached for that one on the ground and just took me a little farther than I thought it was corkscrewing away from me. And, and uh, the last little second, it just took me a little farther, got behind me a little bit. I got off balance and I, dropped, I, lost, I lost my foot in there. But, uh, you know, if I stay up there, get I, I really believe we're probably going to have zeros tonight, but it's not the way it happened. <laughs> He's delusional. I mean, after every game he gets pounded, he talks about how one play, oh, you know, bad luck here, bad luck there. Mosell just said it. You heard him say, you know, we could say bad luck or the WBC injuries. The WBC injury that the Cardinals suffered was a hamstring for Wainwright or a groin, whichever it was. Big deal. All that did was put off the inevitable pounding that he's been taking all year. You want to talk about serious injuries in the WBC, look around at other teams. Look at the Astros, for instance. They lost their leadoff hitter and, without question, Hall of Fame second baseman, Jose Altuve, for a long period of time with a broken hand. And yet they managed a way to keep their head above water while the injuries were... Everybody has injuries. Cardinals didn't have any in the WBC. Wainwright doesn't count. That's a nothing burger. So he's now telling us that if he'd made one play, I really think that we would have put up zeros tonight. Man, you are delusional. And he wasn't winded at all, he said, which was really good news. Good news. Your pitcher got through six innings, gave up four and runs, and he wasn't tired. Yeah, not winded at all at the end, which is which is a new thing for me this year, honestly. I mean, I was uh, having to work so hard uh, to try to generate something, you know, going towards home. Before, I was just gassed after four or five innings. And so uh, it's, it's nice to, to, to have to cover first and, you know, sprint around and pitch six innings and walk out of there and feel like you, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm supposed to feel like yeah. I'm an athlete, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited about how I'm building. I just got to keep going. <laughs> building on what? You gave up four runs in six innings, dude. Building. You're very excited. You ran around like an athlete. This is a guy who's so excited because he's not winded by giving up four earned runs in six innings, and he ran around like an athlete and actually covered first base. Understand, if you're a baseball fan, you know this, but if you're not, covering first base is pretty elementary for a pitcher. Wainwright acts as though he ran around on a bed of hot coals. What's with this guy? Just retire already, would you please? But he's not alone. Ali Mormal, his ne'er-do-well manager who knows nothing, apparently nothing about pitchers at all, kind of thought Wainwright looked like Cy Young. I do think he's in a little bit better rhythm. He's healthy. He's feeling good. And um, he's got a little bit more life and finish to his stuff. And uh, you can see the arm angle is a little different, um, which has helped. But overall, for him to give a six, um was uh was important uh a lot of weak contact got some double plays to get out of some innings there that was big in order to keep uh the pitch count down um didn't get that cutter in to half as much as he wanted to uh for the homer and then the two out walk and then gomes got him but thought he did a pretty nice job <laughs> he's as delusional as wainwright a lot of weak contact but we got out of jams with those double plays you, you're so lucky you had double plays it's not even funny Weak contact. Ask Young Gomes or 
Ian Happ if their balls were weak contact. Those guys belted home runs off of him. Two home runs in four innings. Weak contact. I don't know what these guys watch. I was watching that game, and I thought, as I'm watching it, I thought to myself, wow, this is really Wainwright's last stand. He was struggling. He was laboring. He could barely pitch. I mean, he had no command of anything. Without the double play balls, the Cubs score seven runs. No doubt. No, you can't take the double play balls away. They count. But that's how much trouble he was in. They act as though he was unscathed and it was just a beautiful, well-pitched game. I'm telling you, my thought as I watched, he's done. This will be it. He can barely make the pitches. He can barely get them to the plate. 83-mile-an-hour fastballs. Breaking balls that are way outside with no bite. But Wainwright, the final coup de grace comment on the night of insanity and delusion, he's going to win a lot of games the rest of this year. I'm very confident that we're going to win a bunch of games for me going going forward. So I people keep saying just two more, and I'm like, I've got two months of starts. Two's not the goal, but it is a nice start. We'll go there first. How about we go here first? Retire. He's got two months left. He's clearly going to be in this rotation for the last two months of the season. Why? Why? Don't you have young pitchers down in the minor leagues who you can bring up, especially on September 1st on the call-up date? Don't you want to give them starts to find out what they can do if you indeed have something there? He thinks he's getting too much of starts. Somebody must have told him that. Why would you have a 41-year-old pitcher who's getting bombed every time he goes out get any starts after the call-up deadline only the Cardinals, it seems, would do something like that. That's pure selfishness on Wainwright's part. He doesn't care about the team. He doesn't care about the future of the team, whether or not they can get a look at some of these young pitchers and see if they can start, see if they're capable. He's going to hog his starts on a meaningless finish to the season to a meaningless finish to his career. I find that disgraceful and selfish. There is no reason... For the Cardinals to give him a single start after the September 1st. If you want to pitch him at all, pitch him in the bullpen. I'm not sure I would even do that, but I certainly wouldn't give him any more starts. That's a, that's a given for me. I mean, an absolute given. Matt is up first. Good morning or good afternoon, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well, Miss Slayton. How was your weekend, sir? It was great. As I always say, a weekend is always <laughs> great. There's never anything wrong with a weekend. Yeah, every, every day's a weekend in my life. So, except, but, except I will say this. I'm going to complain a little bit. My power went out again, and I'm sick and tired of having my power go out. <laughs> well, yeah, there were some good storms. It was uh, yesterday was pretty crazy, so our well, Saturday. Well, yeah, Saturday. Saturday, yeah. I've, I've never – I actually, for the first time in my life, videoed the wind that was blowing. Well, I sent it to my son. I, I said, look at this. Look where, look at my house. It, it, trees are halfway to the ground, and it looked like a gigantic tornado – in the distance, it didn't turn out to be, but it sure looked like one. Yeah, it was pretty late, pretty scary at times. It's just worrisome anyway. And uh, like I said, that wind was it was pretty violent. Uh, yeah. Now, the problem for my house and, and my problem with with Ameren is that power went out long before the serious part of the storm got here. So, <laughs> right. I mean, well, I mean, you, if somebody it, blows on your wires, that's the end of it. Yeah, I was going to say, is your power above ground or underground? 
I have a, I have no no idea in my neighborhood. I know it's underground, but I don't know what goes down the street because there's a big um, a power grid down there. I don't know if it's not a power grid, but whatever you call it, power station. Station, yeah, so, and that's yeah, but that's I, I never understood how places with underground power go out. <laughs> it, shouldn't, it should never go out. Yeah, there's only one place, and it takes some hours to get it back. And, and then they send notices to you. You know, it's going to be it's going to be okay by eight fifteen, and eight eight fifteen comes. Oh, it's ten thirty, and I'm like, oh my god! So I just kept yeah. leaving the house, and as soon as I went out to eat, which was now at eight thirty, so I go up to a restaurant to grab something to eat. I no longer sit down and order, and they say, okay, it's been restored. <laughs> You're only two hours off on that prediction just ten minutes ago. Well, that isn't bad, actually. Two hours. I think no, no, that. it was out. It was out yeah. for uh, six hours, but it was two hours. No, but, it was. They, right. they had claimed it was in. It was going to be restored by eight thirty, and then they said ten thirty. <laughs> they have no idea. It's like oh, anything yeah. we deal with anymore. Yeah, they have no. Just don't send the, them. Right. The more technology we get, the dumber people are out there. It's, yeah. like, it's like this Cardinal team. This guy, they're talking like they're going to give him another contract to Wainwright. I, I cannot believe the delusional comments I hear first from Wainwright, which is almost scary that a guy could be that delusional. And then secondly, Marmol, who clearly doesn't know what he's talking about, but I guess he wants to suck up the Wainwright thinking somehow that'll save his job. Maybe I don't know, but but it looks to me like job security around the Cardinals is spectacular. You can be as it's bad incredible. As you... Yeah, it's incredible. And he said he likes what he did. You know what? He, I would respect the bow tie boy a little bit. If he just said, you know what? We came out, we strengthened our double a team. We're going to move those guys up to triple a next year. And hopefully two, three years at the latest, these guys will be here at the bigs proving, you know, making us making our trades valuable. Well, what he really should have said was trading Montgomery is going to give some innings to one of our younger minor league pitchers as they get called up on September 1st. And then uh, we're going to put Adam in the bullpen uh, for the last month of the season. That, that's what he should have said. But they're so afraid of Wainwright. He runs that operation. Trust me, he runs it. He's telling you, I've got two more months of starts. Well, somebody mm-hmm. had to indicate that to him because I don't think he just said it without knowing he's got two more months of starts. He's either going to get hurt again, or he, I don't see him winning another game unless they score 10 runs in the first three innings. Yeah, I haven't looked at their it's- schedule. I don't know if they play the Royals again. So maybe a, on a game against the Royals, the Cardinals could get out to a 8 to nothing lead. And Wainwright scuffle through five innings and get a win, but then that's only one, right? I mean, that's and it's, but the way they were talking, everything I heard was they're going to ask him to come back. I mean, that's un, that's what it sounded like. No, it the way that, no, they're not. I gonna, know he's not coming back. But the fact that he's going to take up valuable starts of young pitchers yes, when a right. team is dying to find out how good their young players are just tells me how selfish he is. And, and so, who's their fifth starter right now with Montgomery gone? I don't even – they bring Libertor back up. I didn't even even see a roster change yet. I don't, I don't, well, they got Michaels. They've got Wainwright. They've got Mats. Um, who else would they pitch? I guess they could bring somebody up. I've drawn a blank on the rest of them, the rest of the bums. <laughs> I mean, That's it's crazy. Not, well, I guess they could throw Dakota Hudson out there and start him a few games. Oh, yeah, that guess. poor guy, just he just cannot throw strikes. So I, I, just, no. I just don't think much – oh, Flaherty. Flaherty's the other one. Flaherty, that's right. Oh yeah, I forgot about him. But it's I thought easy, they were going to trade him. him. Yeah, and so and that's it. I mean, you don't want to talk about it, obviously, but I forgot about them being free agents. And their hope is um, Montgomery doesn't sign, and that would be smart to bring him back, give him a contract. Well, you know, all you had to do was have a conversation with him as you trade him and send him out the door. 
hey, you know, we didn't work a deal out, but we really want to have you back at the end of the year, and we now we've got a, we've acquired some pitching depth, and you've helped us do that. If we can re-sign you, and I would have said the same thing to Hicks. Hey, Jordan, the the um, Blue Jays closer is going to be healthy at the end of the year, so by next year you don't want to compete with him. Come back and be our closer. And right. uh, as it turned out, it was a bad day to be named Jordan in the Cardinal pitching rotation. <laughs> well, Jordan and Nolan's, and then the amount of Tanner's, and Collins and Connors in the whole league, it's unbelievable. It's like these people just named their kids the same names 20 years ago. <laughs> it's, it's like that all over the league. There's Connor Nolby, Connor this, Connor that, Tanner, Connor. It's, I've been looking through the minor leagues and everything, and it's the, the names are not very creative. Or There's four or five of them. Well, it's, it's just, uh, you know, something like I said, if you, if you can – Resign those guys, then you picked up players that are prospects. You don't know if they're any good yet or not. But at least now you got extra players and you didn't lose anything. But if you're just going to let these guys go and the Cardinal history is that they will not resign them, then you've got nothing but prospects. And look, they've already proven their hand. They had a problem with Walker, who looks like a good talent, but not as great as they think. But they had a problem with him, send him down. They didn't like his launch angle off his bat. Then they had a problem with Wilson Contreras, an eight-year, ten-year veteran. So who can these guys work with? They can't work with rookies, and they can't work with veterans, and they have no idea – as you just described earlier in your show perfectly, they cannot decipher and judge talent whatsoever. They have no it's, idea. It is mystifying to me that this major league franchise clearly benefited from Jeff Lunau, and why they won't go after Jeff Lunau again is just beyond my comprehension. I, I don't get it. I don't get the infatuation with Mosellock. I, I don't understand why you wouldn't go back and get the guy who built the nucleus of your team for 15 years. You had a competitive team. And all of a sudden you don't, and you haven't had one now for, you know, they've lost eight straight playoff games. So you haven't had a team that can compete for a championship in a while since 2013 or 14, last time they were at the World Series. Did they they have to give Houston permission to talk to Jeff Loon now when they signed him? I don't remember how that worked out. They Uh, they have to have an anger issue or some some anger with him for not to call him back and bring him back in. Well, the Cardinals think they're above it all. They think, first of all, they think Mosellock's their guy. So that's number one. There's your number one mistake. But number two, you know, he was involved in the, in the quote unquote scandal. Who cares? You know, bring him back. Now uh, he parted ways uh, in a very, not very amicable way with the Astros. He sued the Astros. Um, He didn't win, but that was a mistake on Lunau's part. And that, Tends to make some people a little bit gun shy, but all you have to do is go talk to them. Hey, why'd you assume? What, what what went on? What were you promised? What were you not promised? You know, hey, we saw what you did here. We saw what you do with the Astros. We suck. We're bringing you back. It's a no brainer. The guy has been successful. He's developed talent. He's picked talent up. He he knows sports, uh, especially baseball. It, and you couldn't be any more right. I just think they have to just be angry for him giving him the chance to go there and losing him. Well, look what they did. And you've said this before. The guy that broke into his computer did not do that on his own. No, there's no question about that. And the Cardinals would have to admit that they picked the wrong guy if they went out and got rid of Mosellock and brought Lunau back. They'd have to, but you know what? Part of success is admitting when you made the mistake. Yeah, and for instance, the Dodgers, the Dodgers traded at the deadline for Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly, two Cardinal retreads, both have a better than six earned run average. I mean, what do yeah. these teams think they see in these guys? 
I was just going to bring that up too. That there, <laughs> I know Lance Lynn gives you innings, but you got to score eight runs to win with them. Yeah, I mean, the only, yeah, the only they keep saying, "Well, he gives us innings." Well, I can give you innings. <laughs> it, it, it amazes me. The only it's, real good pitcher that got moved so far that I'm thinking of off the top of my head was Max Scherzer. Yeah, and the Angels, I think, going after Kron and Gritchick was smart because those two guys are hitting the ball. But, again, 50% of their plays in Colorado, so you have to wait and see. I mean, Gritchick's hitting 300, but he's, his power is way down. Yeah. But I would take that in a minute. Well, and the, the Angels look like they have something going. The, the Angels were sellers until about a week ago, and now yeah. they've all of a sudden said they're not going to trade Otani. Which, uh, if you're, you know, if, I guess they think they can get a playoff spot, but, man, if you miss out on trading Otani and he walks on you, yeah. you'll never you'll never live that down from your fans. Well, and you get one compensatory pick, and that could be anything. I mean, right. how often do the picks work out? That's it isn't going to be a guy as good as Otani, I can tell you that. No, and you're not going to see him for eight, five to six years. So it's not even it's not even close. You're right. I would have traded him, gotten a buttload of people in to potentially help now or even a year from now. And I think they missed the boat on that. I mean, I would have Unless just, he signs with them. Unless yeah. he gives them a discount. And I would have tried yeah. to sign him. And, and for whatever reason, they haven't reached a deal. That means either the Angels are trying to get by cheap, and that'll piss him off. Or he's interested in testing the free market. Now, he's Asian, obviously. Uh, everybody thinks the L.A. teams are the ones that would be the most attractive to him. But Seattle, too. I mean, Seattle has, has a large Asian community. So San Francisco. Uh, yeah. San Francisco would be another one. So uh, I think I think it's going to be someplace west, but you never know. I mean, if the Yankees jump in and make the biggest offer, these guys always go for the money. Right. I mean, exactly. You got to set yourself up. I mean, what is this team? He and he's twenty eight. I believe he's going to play six or seven more years, maybe. If I'm his six. agent, I'm getting five years at sixty million a year. Right. Because you're not, too- not, a, not a penny less, and and I might even say. You can we'll go eight years and it won't cost you sixty million a year, but sixty million for five years. The last three years we'll go thirty million because he'll probably be pretty much done as a starting pitcher in the next five years. You certainly what, don't want to pay yeah. him thirty million in his in year six. And like you said, he's two players. He's a pitcher and he's a hitter. So, That's what I mean. That's why you give him right. double salary. That's right. All right, Matt. Good stuff. Yeah, appreciate it. Keep it up, man. Look forward to going to terrestrial radio. Not happy about it per se, but it'll be interesting. Well, we'll there you can always you can listen on their website too, and that'll Correct. be starting a week from today on five ninety. The fan will be doing our sports show there. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Matt. All right, sir. Appreciate the call. So Wainwright says they're going to win a lot of lot more games for him the rest of the way, and he has two months of starts. Let's just be goofy and say he gets. A start a week. Let's say he gets nine on the outside ten starts. That's ten, ten starts you're taking away. I, I wouldn't start him another game. So that would be ten starts potentially you're taking away from young pitchers. If you only pitch him through August, that's four or five starts that you're taking away from your younger pitchers. There is no reason on this earth to pitch Adam Wainwright another inning unless it's in relief. The delusional aspect of the Cardinals is mind-blowing. And his delusion, along with that of his manager, is equally mind-blowing. It's just crazy. It's crazy town. Justin Verlander of the Mets says that he is open 
to waiving his no-trade clause. Now, after Scherzer left, I guess he would be open to it. The Mets aren't going to get in the playoffs this year. Verlander added that he's committed to winning the World Series in New York, but he only signed a two-year deal. The Mets aren't going to be World Series ready next year. Would he go back to the Astros? Would the Astros trade for him? I would say absolutely not. There is no chance that happens. Because the Astros, no, I guess I shouldn't say no chance. Depends on how much of the money that the Mets would eat. But the Astros could have re-signed him in free agency and chose not to. They weren't going to pay him $40 million a year. And he's not having that good of a season anyway. I mentioned earlier, as we sit here in the Monster Energy drink, stl-cars.com, King's Court. And I love me my Monster Energy drink. And you know what? This is probably a pretty good time to have one, too. If you're out there running around in the humidity and the heat, grab yourself one. That's what I'm thinking of doing for sure. (laughs) I want to unleash the beast in me. But Max Scherzer, we talked about earlier, this is the danger when you trade for guys. But Scherzer has been uh, in the postseason a lot. But he hasn't been that good. He's been in 18 different playoff series. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That's a lot. Including a World Series championship in 2019. He was also in the World Series in 2012 for uh, Detroit. So he pitched in two World Series. He was uh, 1-0 against the Astros while pitching for the Nats. He was 0-0 pitching for the Tigers against the Giants. But he had a 4.26 earned run average. He started just one game against the Giants. Went six and a third innings, gave up three runs, including a home run. Against the Astros in the World Series, two starts, a 3.60 earned run average. He gave up four earned runs and a home run. And walked seven, struck out ten. So he wasn't very good. His entire postseason career, he's seven and seven with a 3.58 earned run average. Uh, He's given up four home runs in 13 and a half innings. So his postseason record isn't good. He'll make the Hall of Fame, but it won't be because of his postseason numbers. So then you say to yourself, okay, Rangers, what were you thinking? Well, we know what you're thinking. You've got some injury issues. Obviously, you lost to Grom, Jacob DeGrom, and that hurts. But but what are you thinking? Kevin's up. Good morning, or good afternoon, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, Kevin. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Well, it's Monday, and uh, I know you say it's the day the liberals created, but I get every Monday off from work now, so that makes me pretty happy. Well, that's a reason to be happy. <laughs> so I'm sitting here enjoying a slice of pizza and listening to the Kevin Slayton Sports Show. I like that. Pizza in the <laughs> King's Court. You got it, brother. Um you know, I was listening to you, and, and I got a question, and I, I hope you know. I'm sure you'll know the answer. So what what made Mosaic 
desirable to get this job to start with? Where did he come from? Because he reminds me of an investment banker that was an armchair uh, manager and decided he wanted to mess around with a baseball team. Well, he's uh, was with the Cardinals. He was the assistant to Walt Jockety. And, and again, how did he get that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows how any of these guys get hired or what where their expertise came from? I don't see much expertise in him. And that's my point. It's like, what's his background? What 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 gave him the background to even get the job? Because if if he got that job, then heck, you're you should get the job for sure. You'd have more experience than him. Well, I, I believe me, I'm a much better baseball person than Mosaic ever dreams of being. I, I can't run a computer like he probably can, and I can't hack into Jeff Lunau's computer like he more than likely instructed people to do. But I can I can gauge baseball better than he can. Good grief! Yeah. How could I be it, worse? And, and when you played him at the beginning of the show, you played him talking about the, the event, the trade, you know, the event. I started laughing when I heard that. But when he talks, he sounds like a valley girl in that. He ends everything. He always does. Yeah, he's, yeah, on, he's on an uptick. It, 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 end of every thought is uh, it goes up. Like, hi, yeah. Kevin. What are yeah. you doing? And yeah. it's, it's, that, it's that pomposity and arrogance that bleeds over from him country day or um, – I can't remember. Uh, is it is it Country Day or is he um, the other one out there in uh, Rich Man Land? But anyway, he he, he went to one of them. But he mm-hmm. just he's just not a baseball guy, and he's proven that he's not. And so why? You know, I don't get it. Well, you know, watching the game the other day, they showed him and his quote general manager because he's the president of baseball operations. And they showed him up in the booth and they had their laptops and and that. And I looked at him and I go, "What are they doing? Checking Twitter? Or are they making trades? What are they doing here?" You know, and it just and I, and I hate when the cool weather comes in. I just if I see him wearing a sweater tied around his neck one more time, I just want to yell. It'll so. always be tied around his. his some, now sometimes he'll tie it around his waist like you did when you were in sixth grade, and you thought, know, and you thought yeah. it was cool. And Kevin, God forgive me, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to try to judge people. But I, I look at it as fact. That's just the fact. That's what it is. So, um, you know, I, I argue with some of my Christian friends on that. Like, you shouldn't judge people. Like, no, I, I, it's not a judging them. I'm, just, I'm, I'm doing what Kevin Slayton does. I'm just giving you facts. You yeah, know? I'm not judging him. I'm just saying he wears a sweater around his waist and around his neck. Yeah. You, you be the judge of what that means. Yeah. You know, and, and I you know, know what it meant to, when I was a kid. Yep. Let me ask you a question. What do you, we got Skip Schumacher left as a coach, went to Miami, doing fairly decent there. Um, Maddox leaves as the pitching coach and goes to the Rangers. First off, why did Maddox leave to start with? Who knows? Um, pitching coaches. I'm not a big fan of pitching coaches. I'm not a big fan of hitting coaches. Your major league players know how to pitch and they know how to hit or they wouldn't be there. So I've, well, I've just I mean, never been a fan of that. And, again, it comes down to where did this Blake guy come from? I never heard of him before. And, no. you know, and, but Maddox is doing decent with the Rangers. He's got pitching staff there. He's got a chance. And, and, um, so, you know, it just seems like some coaches are, are, are leaving and doing good. But then we got others that are seen that are in the fold that they don't do anything with. I mean, when Joe McEwing was on the bench the other night when Marmol got thrown out, I was kind of like, why isn't Joe McEwing possibly the manager? Well, he may, he might be. I mean, we, we got to wait and see what they're going to do now in the offseason regarding their managerial situation. But my guess, Job security in St. Louis Cardinal National Baseball Club is really good. It's really good if you're management or the or the on-field manager. Unless apparently. your name is Mike Schilt. Yeah, apparently. But, uh, but yes, maybe Joe McEwing, will get, he'll, he'll leave next and go somewhere and do well. So uh, uh, I, I think it's what a lot of people have said. It's just that Marmo wants a manager in – or not Marmo. Mosaic wants a manager in there that he can control. 
There's no question about that. And I predicted uh, a couple months ago, it's going to be a long period of darkness for Cardinal baseball. And it really is. It's going to be a long time before this team can turn it around. Does it kind of feel like the old Vern Rapp days a little bit? Well, it's worse really than Vern Rapp. I mean, this year has been a disaster. Vern Rapp didn't have two players at first base and third base who are supposedly potential Hall of Famers and still yeah. and still finish, well, right now, like about 14 games under five hundred. Yep. Yeah, you're correct with that. We do have two potential Hall of Famers there, but for some reason they need days off all the time, which we've all talked about that. It's incredible. But, um, and, and do you agree with how Marmol's managing Marmol was managing the designated hitter because he tends to not play Goldschmidt and Arenado put him in DH. Well, yeah, he had Goldschmidt DHing yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you've got a great DH and the Cardinals have to start looking for this, you've got to have a great DH. You know, somebody like the Red Sox when they had Ortiz, that's all he did was DH. You have to have mm-hmm. the same guy in there. Every day. I mean, the Cardinals, you will not have any idea who their lineup will be tomorrow night. You want to no. have any idea? You want to know, know what position they're playing? Very few guys on that team play the same position two nights in a row other than Goldschmidt, Arenado, and uh, DeYoung. They put him in shortstop every night as if he's some sort of a star. Yeah, you're, you're correct. You have no clue out of all nine positions who's going to be there. Even the pitcher could change at the last minute. Um, you have no clue what they're going to do. The only thing that is a given is Marmol's going to be on the bench and Mosaic's going to be up in the box. That's pretty much about it. <laughs> and Arenado will be – well, I shouldn't even say Arenado a third because if he's got a little stiff neck, a little little ouchy, he doesn't play. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, hey, brother, I just wanted to bring that up. Just some food for thought. Uh, got a good Vern Rapp reference in on you, though. <laughs> there you go. It's always good to create Vern Rapp again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. God love you, brother. Have a blessed day. And what, hey, one question. Uh, when you go to the station next week, I mean, I'm going to listen on your on your website. It's easiest sometimes to, where I live to pick up the signal, you know, out there. Right. But are, is the station like are they revamping their lineup and are you going to be just you or are you going to be with someone else in that time slot with you or well we're talking about all kinds of different options but um i will certainly be there noon to two for sure okay because i know there's a noon program now and i kind of like the guy that's on there now with the one guy on there and and i was just curious if they were going to put him with you or something like that we're we're finalizing everything for the but we'll know by the end of the week okay didn't mean jump the gun on you but just curious (laughs) no problem i'll keep you posted we'll be listening thanks kevin God love you, brother. Take care. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Our phone lines are open, 636-348-0460, if you want to jump in. Um, yeah, I don't know where, what, what you know, we could all look up Moselock's career history, but it really doesn't tell us anything. What is the reason they thought he was better suited for the general manager's job than Luna? Luna was the director of scouting for the Cardinals at the time, if you remember. Mosaic was Walt Jockety's assistant. Unless Jockety recommended him, I don't know. But Larusa didn't get along with Mosaic, so I, I don't quite understand having Mosaic at all. Period. And yet he talks like a guy who owns the team himself and will never have to worry about job security. It's really unbelievable. It's also unbelievable kind of deals you get at stl-cars.com. All you have to do is go to the website, stl-cars.com, look at all the vehicles. They've got cars, SUVs, trucks, over a 1,000 of them to choose from. Pick the one you want, then call or text Don, ask for Don, 314-626-3251. 314-626-3251. Tell them which one you want. Tell them the price you want to pay. 
and then he'll go get it for you. He has an extensive inventory all throughout the country of acquiring these vehicles. If you can't find exactly what you want, don't despair. Call him again, 314-626-3251. Tell him, here's what I want. You don't quite have it. It's a different color or this or that, or I want this extra or that extra. And he'll go get that for you. I've bought three vehicles from stl-cars.com. My son just got one about two months ago. His was delivered from Alabama. Mine came from Tennessee. He gets them from all over the country. But the best deals at the right price, the best cars, it's it's amazing. They also have a concierge uh, service department, so you can, you know, you're fine. You're fine anyway. They'll deliver the car to you if you want. I've done it three times. That tells you how high I am on them. 314-626-3251. Ask for Don. Make sure you tell him that we sent you. And uh, I, I can promise this. You will be happy with the result. It's not always you can promise somebody that you, they'll be happy with a result. I promise you, you'll be happy with that result. Of that, there is no no doubt. So give him a call. I think you'll be thrilled when you do. And I think when you see the kinds of vehicles that are on the website, you'll say, holy cow, I didn't realize this even existed. But it does. It does. All right, we'll take a break, and then we're coming right back in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, King's Court.
Welcome you back in. Kevin Slayton with you on this Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon right here in the Monster Energy Drink. SDL-Cars.com. King's Court. Get that punch of energy you need to get going. You need Monster Energy Drink. More than just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can. The most badass energy drink on the planet. Unleash the beast in you. And then head over to Taco Bell for lunch. Taco Bell. Locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations. Those are the ones I like to celebrate the ones I like to support. But they've got a dollar crave menu and a five dollar crave menu that goes breakfast, lunch, dinner, late night. All day, all night. Now there's no way you can beat that. They have great breakfast items off the dollar crave menu. You can get for instance grilled breakfast burritos with bacon bits for a buck. You can also get a double stuffed taco. Go grab one right now. Grande burrito for a buck. Five dollar crave menu if you're a little bit hungrier. Double chalupa in a box with two tacos and a soft drink for five bills. A triple double crunch wrap with two tacos and a soft drink in a box for five bucks. They have two different AM crunch wraps. Each of them are under three dollars. So is the Grande Scrambler for breakfast. Folks, I like to support locally owned and operated businesses, so I do. And here's where the Taco Bell locations are that are locally owned and operated. In Missouri, in the Chesterfield Valley, Jackson, Cape Girardeau, Union, St. Clair, Washington. In Illinois, they're in Waterloo. DuCoin, the home of the State Fair. Carbondale, the home of the Salukis. Springfield, the home of Porky Pig. So you better get to that Taco Bell fast if you live in Springfield, Illinois. He's liable to eat up everything on the menu. Decatur, Illinois. Salem. Troy. Jerseyville. Columbia, the home of Anbrier Golf Club. Taco Bell. Those are the locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations. Our phone lines are open for you. 636 348 Zero four six zero three four eight zero four six zero. No other um, trades to report, at least at this point. But you can imagine that the phones are burning up around baseball cities in America these days. Uh, these next two days, actually, because it ends at five o'clock tomorrow. That's when the trading deadline will pass. And if you haven't gotten it done by then, you won't. I remember a few years ago. This is how how late some teams will wait, and and how quickly it can happen too. The Astros were looking for a pitcher in 2017 at the trade deadline. Justin Verlander was on the market. The Astros wanted him. 
and they wanted him badly, actually. And so Jim Crane, the owner, got involved at the last minute. He said literally in the last 45 seconds of the trade deadline window, they got an agreement and a signed contract from Verlander. That's how close it went. These things can get down to the wire. He says as an owner, he gets involved when it's big money and it's a big-name player, and Verlander, of course, was both. And he gave the Astros some great years there. He got injured, of course, missed a year, but also pitched them into two worlds, three World Series, pitched them into three World Series while he was there. No, I take that back, four. He was there for all four of their World Series. Won the Cy Young Award last year for them. Just got wind of this from our director of research, Pee Wee Herman has passed away, dead at age 70. Pee Wee Herman, boy, I'll tell you what, he had some issues there in the theater, but that guy was funny when I was growing up. He was a funny dude. Pee Wee Herman, dead at age 70. Sad to see that. Uh, but uh, So that's where uh, these trades can come at the last minute, and uh, we'll, of course, keep you posted should anything happen while we're on the air. And then there's all day tomorrow until 5 o'clock tomorrow Central Time when these teams can finish their deals. Verlander, by the way, has said he's open to a trade that he would be open to waiving his trade no trade clause, which would be interesting if he actually does it. Aaron Rodgers is back in the news. The Jets quarterback who will open the season this Thursday night in the Hall of Fame game is really ticked off at uh, Sean Payton, the new Denver Broncos coach. Peyton, for whatever reason, decided to trash his predecessor in Denver, Nathaniel Hackett. Now, Hackett happened to be Aaron Rodgers' offensive coordinator for three years in Green Bay when Rodgers won the MVP of the league twice. So Rodgers has said that it's not, it's not, you're not going out on a limb, and it's, you could argue very seriously that Hackett is his favorite coach on the field ever. So Rodgers heard the disparaging remarks that Sean Payton made for some reason. And I don't get it. Payton called Hackett's one year in Denver last year one of the worst coaching jobs in the history of the NFL and said there were 20 dirty hands around quarterback Russell Wilson's career-worst season. He threw 16 touchdown passes and was sacked 55 times. And then Payton decided he would take a shot at the Jets, Aaron Rodgers' new team, by saying they were infatuated with the pomp and circumstance of a blockbuster offseason that included getting Rodgers. Peyton said the Jets were a dream team doomed to failure. These two teams play, by the way, in the regular season, week five in Denver. There'll be some bad blood on the field that day. But I don't understand Sean Payton's remarks. Coaches don't talk like that about other coaches. They never do. And Rodgers decided that he would fight back for his coach, who's now, by the way, the offensive coordinator with the Jets. So he's been reunited with Rodgers. He said, it made me feel bad that someone who's accomplished a lot in the league is that insecure that they have to take down another man to set themselves up for some easy fall if it doesn't go well for that team this year in Denver. I think it was way out of line, inappropriate, and I think he needs to keep my coach's names out of his mouth. Woo. I don't know. I know that Sean Payton's arrogant. He's an arrogant, arrogant coach. Roger says that his love for Hack goes deep, 
and that he's arguably my favorite coach I've ever had in the NFL. So it's natural that he would defend him. But I don't understand why Peyton went after him. He says, we kept in touch after years in Green Bay. Love him and his family. He's an incredible family man, incredible dad. His approach to the game makes it fun for everybody, how he cares about the guys. It's how he goes about his business with respect, with leadership, honesty, and integrity. The current Jets head coach who hired Hackett says, I kind of live by the saying, if you ain't got no haters, you ain't popping. I'm not quite sure what saying that is and who made it. He says, so hate away to Sean Payton. Obviously, we're doing something right if you've got to talk about us when we don't play you until week five. Circle that game on the NFL calendar if you're an NFL fan. That one might be worth watching. That could be worth watching. Because Aaron Rodgers has at least one receiver with the Jets that's very good. The Jets aren't a bad team. They've just, they just haven't had a quarterback. Now, the, the question will be, can, can Rodgers throw accurately in the swirling winds of, of New York? We'll see. He certainly performed well in cold weather in Green Bay, so the cold isn't going to bother him at all. But that will have a little extra motivation in Aaron Rodgers' mind. And honestly, you know, you don't want to piss off Tom Brady. You don't want to piss off Aaron Rodgers. These guys are good enough on their own. And yes, Russell Wilson's a good quarterback, but he's not in the caliber of Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. And I think Peyton, uh, Sean Payton will have a good year in Denver as his coach. I do. But I don't understand the, the, the concept of dogging him like that. It doesn't make any sense. And as I said before, coaches don't do that. But Sean Payton, I guess, has some sort of a chip on his shoulder for some reason. It's hard to figure it out. Same with Phil Mickelson. Here's another guy. Mickelson just whining like a little stuck pig. You know, this guy got tens, perhaps hundreds of millions to go to that live tour. And now Jay Monahan of the PGA Tour is trying to, you know, make fun and make make friends with the live tour for some reason. This thing called the Player Benefit Program that Monahan has noted in a memo to his players last week, it's a way that he's trying to appease the PGA players. They felt they were burned by the PGA Tour's talking points of the past year, only to see Monahan strike a secret deal with the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. The PGA had hired a company called Cloud, which represents the families of 9-11, and Cloud trashed the golfers who went to Saudi Arabia's tour. And now Cloud has left the PGA Tour after Monaghan got cozy with the uh, Saudis. It's all too much for Mickelson, who isn't happy about it. Here's what the memo said that Monaghan sent to the players. A task force is evaluating developing potential pathways back to the PGA Tour for live players who wish to reapply in the future. Now, he says, uh, Mickelson says, what a colossal waste of time. Not a single player on the live tour wants to play PGA Tour anymore. It would require a public apology and restitution for live players for paying millions to clout media to disparage all of us. A better topic is future sanctions for the many players who come to the to the live tour. Mickelson's out of his mind. Something's gotten into that guy. Not a single player on the live tour wants to play the PGA. Kepka said that if he had known his knee wasn't injured, he would have stayed with the PGA tour and wouldn't have gone to the live tour. I'm sure these guys enjoy playing in majors. 
I'm sure they enjoy playing in the great venues that the PGA Tour has to offer, like Pebble Beach. A public apology? Restitution for live players? Players who jumped for $100 million in some cases? Restitution? Sanctions for current PGA players who would come over to the live tour? This guy's nuts. Phil Mickelson has literally lost his mind. (laughs) The penalties are going to be for players like Mickelson if he wants to come back to the PGA Tour. He says he doesn't. Well, that's because he gets his brains beaten in if he does. That's why he doesn't want to come back. But Phil Mickelson has taken a Hall of Fame career and, and and a personality and a reputation that people really liked him a lot. He was a fan favorite. And now he's one of the most unpopular players in the world in golf. It's incredible how one guy did that to himself. But he did. Unbelievable. All right, folks, our featured interview in our trip into the King's Vault is the former referee in the NBA, Tim Donahue. Quick background to Tim Donahue. A very successful NBA ref was betting on NBA games, not games that he worked He was betting on other games based on the knowledge that he had, how the league wanted referees to call games, based on who was playing a certain game, and was winning $2,500 a game. Somehow or another, his bookie was being investigated by the FBI. And also, his bookie was in tight with the mob. The mob overheard his conversations with the bookie because they told him, We want in on the action. Give us those games. He did, and the FBI was listening in. He was then busted, went to prison, was beaten up in prison. And the FBI agent that arrested him wrote the forward to his book, Foul Play, and said that there is not one scintilla of evidence that Tim Donahue ever took part in betting on a game he worked or in throwing a game in any way, shape, or form. So while David Stern of the NBA, the commissioner at the time, disparaged Tim Donahue, the truth is Tim Donahue was an excellent referee who exposed the cheating that the NBA levied against the referees. Here's what you do, they said. Call this, this, and this particular games. Don't call Michael Jordan ever for traveling or anything else. Incredible stuff. Here's our interview with Tim Donahue when it came time for David Sterling to be the next guy in the crosshairs of David Stern in the NBA. When Sterling had made some remarks about Magic Johnson and a girl, Sterling was sleeping with a younger girl. And so the NBA was forcing Sterling out. And Tim Donahue talked, because the NBA acted as though they were above the fray of this racist conversation, yet they let their black players like Shaquille O'Neal call black players or white players crackers all the time. Here's our conversation with Tim Donahue. All right, the NBA Finals last night, in a bizarre twist, Draymond Green is suspended by the NBA. Lo and behold, look out, the Cavaliers won, forcing a Game 6 at Cleveland, perhaps opening the door for a Game 7, which is exactly what the NBA wants. We've been saying for years on this show that the NBA is as corrupt as the day is long. And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now, he has written book a book about his life in the NBA, he has suffered at the hands of David Stern's terrorist comments regarding him. That's how I look at it. David Stern 
uh, presided over an NBA that took corruption to a great limit. Tim Donahue joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's always great to have you on the show. We appreciate your time. You look at this suspension. You refereed hundreds of NBA games. You've seen the memos. You've seen the videos from the NBA office about how to call games, how to treat specific players. What do you make of Draymond Green's shocking suspension days after whatever occurred occurred? Definitely shocking. If you look at at what he had done in previous games uh, and the uh, severity of it and him not being suspended when they were down three games to one uh, versus him being suspended for uh, what he had done when they were up three games to one, it just doesn't make sense at all. And it just, uh, you know, goes along the lines of the NBA does what it wants to do when it wants to do it. And it, it depends on what the bottom line is. And definitely they've helped themselves here in the bottom line with this going to a six game. Do you think they suspended him in order to extend the series? I definitely think that they, uh, suspended him to, to put Cleveland at an advantage to help them, uh, to force a game six for sure. Tim, do you think what he – I mean, I, I tend to agree with that philosophy. The NBA wants to see this go – I mean, they'd love to see it go seven games. Do you think that's not a flagrant foul, though, punching a guy in the in the jewels? I don't think he punched him myself, but – I don't think he punched him either. I think definitely what he did uh, uh, to uh, the guy in Oklahoma City, Adams, was uh, overt and excessive and unnecessary and deserved to be suspended for that, and he wasn't. I think when you talk about what – LeBron did to him and stepping over him, you have to allow that player uh, who's being embarrassed to react to that. And that's what we've always been taught is, uh, you know, to get the first act and not the second act. And the first act is LeBron stepping over him. So he just pops up. And I don't think that he intentionally hits him in the groin at all, not like he did in the previous acts. I would agree with that. The previous act was clearly intentional in my book, and that deserved a suspension. This did not. And, Tim, as you watch it, as we talk with Tim Donahue, as you watch the way these games are being officiated, what stands out to you? You know, nothing stands out at this point. I think what the NBA is going to have some problems if they get down to a closed game uh, and who's going to get the benefit of the calls in those closed games. Uh, you look at the, the game in uh, San Antonio with Oklahoma City, uh, you know, when it gets close, the, the referees get a little bit nervous and, and um, mistakes are made, so... Uh, um, I think if one of these games gets close, they're going to have a lot of problems. When I look at the Kevin Love incident when Draymond Green nearly decapitated him, and I see all three officials stand there and not blow their whistle for even a foul, what has this game disintegrated into? If you were if you were officiating that game, is that a foul? Oh, it's absolutely a foul, and for them not to call a foul uh, is embarrassing to the NBA uh, along the lines of, all those calls that were missed in that Western Conference with uh, Oklahoma City and San Antonio. So it's a huge embarrassment for the league. But yet, you see those same officials that messed up that Oklahoma City-San Antonio game advance into the NBA Finals. And how or why is that possible? Uh, you know, nobody knows. Uh, for people to be promoted and get bonuses when they uh, are doing such a poor job is actually comical. And that's where uh, the league loses a lot of its fans. Yeah, I think it loses all credibility. We all, you don't even have to be a serious basketball fan to watch that Oklahoma City San Antonio game and realize the officiating was either corrupt, inept, or just simply blowing your mind away by their incompetence. 
and and to promote them and give them extra money, I, I'm at a loss. What do you think goes into that decision? You know, I'm not sure why they continue to do that. Uh, they've come out and said that, you know, if somebody makes a, a mis- major mistakes that they weren't going to advance them. Uh, in the high school and college ranks, the NCAA tournament, if a referee or has a bad game, you, you don't see them again. In the NBA, two of these guys were on that game, and they advanced them into the NBA finals and, and gave them huge bonuses. So to me, it, it just makes uh, no sense other than the fact that, uh, you know, like Dick Bavetta said, they were uh, uh, company men and, and, and the NBA's go-to guys, and they just do what the NBA dictates them to do through these meetings and tape sessions. As an official, a former official at the NBA level, what would your thoughts have been if you're an official not getting those assignments and you see these clowns get that? You know, it's very upsetting, but what it does is it puts your mindset to the point to where you're going to do what the league wants, and that's why they're able to dictate uh, these games and prolong these series because an official, you're going to go out on that floor because you know you're being created by these people that have the purse strings to advance you to that next round of the playoffs to put an enormous uh, amount of money into your pocket. So you're going to call what the league wants you to call. You're going to concentrate on what they're telling you to concentrate on, and it's always going to put a team at an advantage or a disadvantage. Former NBA official Tim Donahue visits with us here at Harpo's in Chesterfield, live on the Paschal Ribbon Gateway Buick GMC Kings Court. Tim, when you were officiating and when you were betting on games, you weren't altering games with your officiating. Even the FBI agent that uh, charged you and arrested you said that in the forward to your book. What is it about the NBA that they send memos and videos, as you pointed out in your book, to officials to say, here's what we want called and here's how we want to call it. Why do they do that, do you suppose? I think that uh, they do it because of the bottom line, and it's very prevalent in these playoff games when a team gets down in the series. They'll send a league official in to meet with the referees and go over tape sessions from the previous teams, (laughs) and they'll show them things that they want them to concentrate on. And it's always going to put that team uh, that's down in the series at an advantage because we all know if you can get uh, one or two extra games out of a playoff series, it's millions and millions of dollars for the – uh, the NBA, and that's what they're trying to do. And we and all I, know that David Stern came out and said at one point the best scenario for him for the NBA Finals would be the Lakers versus the Lakers. Right, right. Uh, I'll never forget that. And that, to me, is the epitome of corruption. Tim Donahue is our guest, and I know, Tim, that you do, you do handicapping now, and I won't ask you what you think of Game 6, but based on what you're telling me uh, and, why, and how these league officials will come in and talk to the officials, you got to love Cleveland in Game 6. Well, you know, Cleveland's at home, and Dick uh, Bavetta, who's now in the Basketball Hall of Fame, used to say that he was the NBA's go-to guy. He was put on Game 6s to force Game 7s. Uh, he blatantly discussed that. I don't know that they have a guy like that now that's going to come out and say that, but definitely uh, who's ever on this crew is going to make sure that uh, they don't send that team home. They're going to get the benefit of any close calls, especially – uh, being on their home floor. Yeah, it's an amazing phenomenon. Do you think all the other sports are similar? I know that hockey officiating is horrific, but I don't think there's anything worse than NBA officiating. Just the Kevin Love call, the San Antonio game that you and I have discussed here, those two games, those calls and those games, should tell all of America that the NBA is not on the up and up. You know, it's never more uh, overt than, than what the NBA does, and 
and some of the arrogance that David Stern would throw out there, you know, along the lines of that comment, the Lakers versus the Lakers would be his, uh, you know, best uh, NBA final scenario. That That is what's caused uh, a lot of the problems for the NBA, and they're trying to straighten it out, but they, they just seem to be steering that ship in the wrong direction constantly. Tim Donahue is our guest, a former NBA official. Tim, when you were betting on games, you were going with information that you knew based on how the officials the officials were assigned to games and how you knew they called certain games. Am I correct in that? Yes, and I would also go with what, uh, you know, the league official would come into the uh, meeting and tell us what to concentrate on, uh, who to crack down on in certain situations. And I knew it was going to put a team in an advantage or a disadvantage. And if that line was three, maybe it should have been, you know, six or seven. And I was telling people uh, to bet those games. And you, you told me a story once, and I believe it's in your book as well. There was a specific video when you were a young official that was sent out by the uh, NBA about a specific move along the baseline, and you called it that night against Michael Jordan. Can you tell us that story about Phil Jackson's reaction? Sure. It was actually in Philadelphia, so Chicago's on the road. Michael Jordan does a spin move on the baseline uh, and uh, basically travels and dumps the ball. And I called the travel, which was what the league showed us to call uh, through video uh, of that specific move. 20,000 people in Philadelphia booed me for making this call against Michael Jordan <laughs> on the road. There's a timeout, and Phil Jackson comes at me and says, what are you doing? And I said, you got the same tape and uh, the same memo that we got. That they want that move called to travel. He goes, they may want that move called to travel, but they certainly don't want that move called to travel on him. And pointed at Michael Jackson as he came by me and said, yes, they don't want that called on me. So it's uh, the scenario as a young official, I had to go back into the locker room and discuss that with the veterans. And they said, yeah, they, they want that call, but they don't want that call on Jordan. Not on Jordan. So how intimidating was that to you as a young official? Uh, definitely. It was, uh, it was the craft of learning how to officiate in the NBA and make sure that those stars stayed on the court. Uh, didn't go to the bench because people didn't pay $1,500 or $2,000 to sit courtside to see him on the bench. They wanted those players, uh, you know, out on the floor doing amazing things. Tim, when you were betting on games and you had inside knowledge of who was refing each game, you just alluded that it was more against the point spreads. I would have guessed it was more playing the over-unders based on the number of fouls these guys typically call compared to other guys. Is that not the case? And that's funny that you bring that up because that was the FBI's contention. They kept asking me that uh, in these interviews. And it was never really an over-under situation. It was more or less, you know, referees sticking it to certain players or referees were buddies with certain players. And, uh, you know, you can go back to the Eddie F. Rush scenario when uh, he was fixing Michael Jordan up with women on the road. And, you know, if you're going to tell me that a guy's doing this for an NBA player – and not give them the benefit of the calls on the floor also. So yeah. there was a lot of relationships that were both positive and negative spilled out onto the floor. And those pieces of information were imperative for you, weren't they, in terms of who you would bet on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was huge for me to know if uh, you know a guy like Steve Gabby was going to go into a game and stick to somebody like Allen Iverson, or if a guy like Dick Pavetta was going to go into a game uh, and feel that he had to give a team a makeup based on uh, some maybe calls he made in a prior game that he didn't like or the league office didn't like, and he was going to take care of a team. 
I wish I had known you back in those days. <laughs> Tim, you also talked about the racial component in the NBA when we had you on last we regarding the Donald Sterling situation. That, of course, is now in the past, but it's, it was clear from your experience that uh, certain black players were, were without question, uh, hammering players because they were white. No doubt. I mean, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, you know, played at a certain level every night. When you saw him play against Greg Osterdag of the Utah Jazz, you just saw, uh, you know, different things come out of him that you didn't see in previous games. So, uh, definitely, you know, there's a, there's a scenario there where, uh, you know, black players took offense to a white guy guarding him and actually guarding him tough. So, uh, there were scenarios where, you know, as an official, you definitely had to keep your eye uh, on those. Tim, what are the chances you were just a lone wolf in all the professional officiating, uh, you know, officials across the sports that was taking I advantage mean, of knowledge as, uh, like this and turn it into, you know, personal gain? I, I think when, you know, you know uh, the situation, you know what I knew, I wasn't the only one that people approached at parties. I wasn't the only one that people approached uh, outside of the NBA circle. So uh, I don't think maybe people were betting on the games, but I think definitely, uh, you know, they were discussing the fact that teams were putting an advantage or a disadvantage because we laughed at it uh, as a staff, you know, when certain uh, officials were put on certain games like Dick Bavetta to, to, you know, put a team in an advantage like the Lakers to get them into a game seven or get them through uh, the conference finals into the NBA finals. So, I find it very hard to believe that I was the only one passing along that information. Yeah, it is It is kind of crazy to think that as David Stern identified you as a rogue official, you actually were a highly respected official during your days as an NBA official. And in addition, as I said in the uh, forward to your book, the FBI agent that arrested you said that there was n- there was zero evidence that you ever altered a game. That has to make you feel fairly good about all this. i tell you what, I don't think I would be in the position that I am today if it wasn't for Phil Scala, who was the uh, supervisory special agent who actually arrested me, uh, didn't support me um, in regard to writing the forward for the book and actually coming to the sentencing with me and, and walking out of the sentencing with me with my father uh, to show his support because of the investigation that he did and the corruption that he felt was involved in the NBA and the fact that they needed uh, to clean up their house. Tim, as a, as part of your deal, when you went to prison, tell tell our listeners, those who didn't hear our previous interviews, that was no picnic for you. Uh, definitely not. Uh, when you talk about being a cooperating witness for the government against organized crime and against the NBA and you know, your picture being on every TV screen across the country the day you're entering jail, uh, you know, you're basically labeled as a rat. And there was definitely people in there that were doing a lot of time because somebody had cooperated against them. And unfortunately, uh, there were some guys that took some shots at me. One guy was successful and uh, took a large paint rolling pole to my knee. And, uh, you know, I've since had two operations on my knee to try to alleviate the pain that he caused Tim Donahue is our guest. His book, by the way, is Blowing the Whistle, the Culture of Fraud in the NBA. Um, it is interesting that you're the only guy that's written a book of this sort. Have you felt any pressure or any threats 
from the NBA under David Stern or subsequently under Adam Silver because of what I consider to be one of the most forthright, honest books in the history of American sports. Actually, the name of the book is Personal Foul. Was I'm sorry, changed. Personal Fouls. Yes, you changed it. That's right. My, my yes, mistake. Changed. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I mean, David Stern sent uh, attorneys into the offices, a random house, which canceled my book. Uh, I had to get a different publisher after uh, it was all set to go. And he sent uh, attorneys into the offices of 60 Minutes to try and uh, get them to cancel the, the uh, episode that was being filmed. So, there was a lot of pressure from the NBA that they tried to shut down the um, whole situation. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, they did a pretty good job uh, because it isn't until a lot of these playoffs take place and, and people see what's going on that guys like yourself bring up the book and bring up the story and show the, uh, you know, the fans what really the NBA is about. Personal file, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA. Folks, I have read the book. It is a wonderful and a wonderfully true account of what goes on in professional sports today in the NBA. Specifically, I find it to be a harbinger of the corruption that is involved in all professional sports and probably trickling down to the college level. Jim, have you have you been uh, fortunate enough to hear from any officials or anyone at the college level where this same type of behavior goes on? Uh, I did. I actually spoke to a college uh a football referee that uh, had a gambling problem and, uh, you know, he had felt that some things were going on at the college level. So, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, uh, and, uh, fortunately for me, it's been very positive and, and people have been very understanding and forgiving. Tim Donahue is our cast. He's one of my favorite guests because he's one of the few people in the history of professional sports or college sports that actually tells the truth from a position of authority. Tim, uh, tell our listeners how it came to be that when you were betting on NBA games that you were caught. Uh, what happened was is that uh, I, I stopped doing it. I wanted to stop doing it, but I didn't know the, the information was being leaked to people associated with organized crime. They basically picked me up in a car, took me for a ride, and threatened me. And uh, I started to do it again because they threatened my family. They threatened to expose me to the NBA. And with that... Uh, it was heard over a Gambino wiretap, and that's how the whole investigation started. Now, so so let me stop you here. So you were picked up by the mob right out of The Godfather, and you were you were either threatened to give them the information that you had, and how did they know that you had this information? Because uh, when I was betting with a friend of mine, he was passing that information along to people uh, without my knowledge. So when we decided to stop uh, doing it, uh, the people that he was passing along it along to got upset. And when I was in Philadelphia and I had a game, they picked me up outside the hotel and basically uh, explained to me that they would be getting this information. And if I didn't continue to give it to them, that they were going to send somebody down to Florida to visit my wife or kids or expose me to the NBA. So at that point, I thought I was between a rock and a hard place. Hopefully, I'll give them this information uh, till, till the end of the year and everything would go away. But that's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. And the FBI was listening in on wiretaps to them, and that's how you were caught, correct? Yes. It's amazing. By the way, good friend you had there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't make any money off that information yeah. either. Well, Tim, Tim, when you look back on everything, what are your thoughts? Because you've made a success of yourself now. You have rebounded 
from what was a horrific situation. I tip my cap to you every time I talk to you because I have nothing but respect for you. Well, I, I think I'm just one of the guys that is, is a little bit lucky. I have a great family support. And, uh, you know, without that, I don't think I would have been able to rebound. So uh, a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work. And uh, like you said, I'm back on my feet, and, and I'm appreciative of the second chance I've been given. What would you tell a young NBA referee who came to you today and said, I'm getting pressured to call games a certain way? You know, basically you have to do what uh, – your employer tells you to do and dictates you to do uh, because that's how you're being graded. If not, uh, they could say that you know you're you're not doing the job as we want you to do the job, and they could release you. So you basically have to do what your employer tells you to do. When Adam Silver goes on television and talks about today's NBA, is he any different than David Stern? I think he's uh, a little bit more polished, a little bit less arrogant, but I think I think it's definitely the same message that's coming across. And if you were telling NBA fans, game six, game seven, and NBA fans say, boy, I can't wait, the competition is great, it's on the up and up, would you laugh? I would laugh, and it is comical to me, uh, but I think when uh, some of these fans really uh, start to do a little bit of research and pay attention a little bit more closely than what they may uh, pay attention during these playoffs, they see it and they understand it. Tim, do you think the outcome of this final series has been predetermined? Uh, no, I don't think it's been predetermined. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, once they get to the sixth game, I think that they basically try to make it as fairly as possible because uh, the last thing that they would want is to have a game seven and uh, have a situation like Oklahoma City and San Antonio in the last minute of a game to where ten calls are blatantly wrong. Uh, you talk about global attention of uh, screwing up Game 7 of the NBA Finals would just be a nightmare for the league. But but yet, when you when you say that they would hate to have that scenario, they have invited that scenario by promoting the same officials that caused that problem in that previous series to officiate in the Finals. Uh, no doubt. At some point in, in the next uh, you know five or ten years, there's going to be a situation in a game seven of an NBA Finals where the wrong team wins and is crowned the champion that shouldn't. Owen is back in the studio. He has a question for you, Tim. Go ahead, Owen. Tim, watching this NBA Finals, and I'm curious what you thought, uh, being a part of refereeing these games and now watching them, have you ever seen a situation like this where not the referees are letting them play or being more lenient with their whistles, but just blatantly not calling fouls and letting these games get so out of hand to the point where players are stepping over players and then we have calls being ruled a suspension days after an event. Have you ever seen anything like this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the guy, Jason Phillips, who was uh, with Danny Crawford that was on that play with LeBron and Jermon Green. Uh, you know, there. I mean, the, the, the calls that he's missed in these playoffs have been to the point where you don't know not only – how he got to the second or third round, but to promote him to the NBA Finals is, is absolutely absurd and comical when there's other officials on that staff that could do a much better job. Tim, I call the NBA thug ball because it does remind me of that. It doesn't appear to me that the officials understand what is a foul and what isn't a foul. Kevin Love is a glaring example, of course. But what in the world happened to contact being a foul? I mean, in basketball, the rule book says contact's a foul. But, of course, we know that's not the case. 
Well, the problem is is that the officials go out and they referee the names on the front and the back of the jerseys rather than the violations that take place on the court. And that's where it creates a lot of problems for them that, uh, you know, it depends on who it is, the score and time in the game as to whether you're going to call that uh, at a certain time. Folks, if you want to read one of the greatest books I've ever read, it's Personal File, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA. Tim Donahue's the author. He's been our guest. Tim, you're, do, you're doing a great job of, of enlightening people around the country. Do you look at the other sports, and do you think that the same things go on from the commissioner's office to the officials? I, I do look at other sports. I definitely think that... Uh, you know, the bottom line is huge for these commissioners uh, in regard to, to revenue. So I, I think that they do do it. I don't think that they do it uh, so blatantly uh, and arrogantly as the NBA does it. Uh, but I definitely do think that, it, uh, you know, it gets done. Does the game today resemble, the NBA I'm talking about now, resemble the game that you grew up watching? Uh, no, I think the game that I grew up watching, uh, and, and if you go back and you look at a game from 20 years ago to a game now, uh, 20 years ago there was, there was no physicality in the game at all. Uh, defenders didn't use their hands like they do today. There was a lot more freedom of movement. The scores were 120 to 122. So uh, you know, I think the, the game is much more physical today than it was 20 years ago. And for your own personal views, was it more entertaining then or now? To me, it was more entertaining then. Oh, definitely then. It's more exciting. It's freedom of movement. There's, uh, uh, like you said, it, it doesn't have that thug aspect to it, uh, where people are just clobbering each other and beating each other up and giving each other cheap shots. So definitely more entertainment to see great athletes fly up and down the court uh, and, and not be impeded or, or uh, you know, damaged in a way where they can't get to the basket. And yet the officials who could change that don't want to change it because of the pressure from the league office, correct? Yeah, it's the league office that always dictates everything uh, in regard to the, to the referees. It's uh, you know something that they uh, have points of emphasis in the beginning of the year, and they carry those through uh, throughout the year, changing them at different times. So it, it comes from the league office. Tim, great stuff as always. We appreciate your time. Good luck with the handicapping service, and thank you so much again for the visit. I always appreciate you having me. Thank you for the way you treat me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. That's right, Tim Donnie. You, you bet. Too. That's Tim Donnie. I have the utmost respect for that guy. I mean, when the FBI agent that arrests you says, this guy did nothing illegal in terms of the way he officiated games, he simply bet on games, and that's illegal. We caught him because the mob, we were eavesdropping on the mob. Talk about bad luck, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to your friend. You don't get well, that was Tim Donahue from a couple of years ago from the King's Vault talking about the NBA and the corruption that pervades the NBA finals and the NBA seasons and the way the referees call games and they're instructed to call games. That was one of the most enlightening conversations I've ever had, and we hope you enjoyed it uh, a second time around if you didn't hear it the first time. And many people don't hear the some of the things we have in the vault the first time. Remember, you can al- always find stuff at kevinslaytonshow.com. Things from the past, past shows, past interviews, and the like, that's all there if you're ever interested in just going back and taking a look at it. But I I just found it enlightening how he said that once they get it to game six, then they don't want anything to make it look like it was it's fixed or somehow not exactly like it's supposed to be. 
It's interesting. But in, he said in the next five years he expects an NBA final to just blow up because the wrong team's going to win. The NBA has always been under a scrutiny of game fixing. You know, no, nothing's ever been proven other than what Tim Donahue has told us, and that's proven. I mean, no one's no one has said other than David Stern saying that he was a rogue referee because he was betting on games, but no one ever said that what he cl- claimed in his book in personal files that he was wrong or that he was making it up or that somehow uh, this is inaccurate is not an accurate portrayal of the way the NBA games are called officiated and determined. So if nobody's going to deny it, of course, the only conclusion you can draw is that it's true. And in Tim Donahue's case, I don't think there's any question. You, you can imagine how the NBA just must hate Tim Donahue. He's, he's making a pretty good living for apparently being a handicapper now. And why wouldn't he be? The kind of information that he was privy to? But you talk about bad luck getting caught the way he got caught. All he did was bet on games like millions of other people do. Except he had some great information based on how he knows the games are going to be called. For instance, if he knew how Kevin Slayton refereed a game, he was telling me this uh, off the air, then he would make his wager based on who the referee was because he knew that I might be an aggressive referee and I blow the whistle and so there's going to be a lot of free throws. Or if it's another guy that doesn't call a lot of fouls, he bet it accordingly. But to have the double whammy of your buddy giving your games over to members of organized crime to the mob, giving your picks, and then when you say you're not going to do it anymore, one of the mobsters picks you up at your hotel in Philly and threatens to harm your family in Florida, you know you're in trouble. And then for that particular member of the Gambino family to be under video or excuse me, audio surveillance by the FBI and that's how you get caught, that's incredible. That was one of the greatest... Uh, stories that I've ever heard as to how he got caught. And, of course, prison wasn't fun when he gets beat up and injures a knee and has to have surgery on it. But I thought a very enlightening interview and a lot of fun. He was a very interesting guy to talk to. A very smart guy, by the way. And he was a heck of a referee. He worked a lot of uh, playoff games, so he was graded highly in the the NBA. But then when he, he bets on the games... Stern has to issue some sort of a proclamation that he's a rogue NBA referee that, of course, the rest of them are all choir boys. And none of them would dare think to bet on games. Again, keep in mind, he never bet on a game that he worked. So, therefore, he had no authority to alter the game's outcome in any way. But that didn't seem to matter to David Stern. But that was quite the scandal that the NBA had to work their way through. And then when he came out with the book Personal Files... It was a double scandal because now the truth came out. Had he had, had David Stern not treated Tim Donahue the way he did, he probably wouldn't have written the book. But that's the way it goes. Now you got a book to deal with, and the truth is in there, and the players know it. The other officials know it. Everybody knows it. That NBA games are not on the up and up. He said he would laugh if you told him that in the NBA Finals, the games are on the up and up. It's amazing. Somebody's got their hand in the till. Right now it's China, because China governs the NBA, and whatever China says goes. And that's how the NBA operates. 
Sad, isn't it? By the way, as we get closer to the trade deadline, uh, the Mets are saying that they are not conducting a full fire sale. Now, that's interesting because general manager Billy Epler traded Max Scherzer. So if you're not conducting a fire sale, why did you trade him? He says it's not a rebuild. It's not a liquidation. The other, the second half of that dynamic duo at the top of the rotation, Justin Verlander, says what he's going to do largely depends on how the organization views next year because he's only got a two-year contract. He said, I'm committed to winning a championship here, but if the organization decides that's not the direction they think is the best fit for next year, uh, then he would be open to waiving his no trade. Interesting that in return for Max Scherzer, the Mets got um, the younger brother of Ronald Acuna Jr., the best player in baseball. But he's going to be a double-A player. Scherzer's 39 years old. He has opted in for next year on his contract. He could have opted out, but he opted in, so the Rangers made the deal. So that's where all of that stands as we continue to count the hours down to 5 o'clock Central Time tomorrow when the trade deadline will come to a halt. Will the Cardinals make any more moves? We've examined the moves they made today. I don't know that they will make any more moves. I'm not confident that they will. They clearly have indicated that Arenado is not on the market. They haven't been as definitive with Goldschmidt. In my opinion, in order for the Cardinals to become competitive again within the next five or six years, and by competitive I mean win a World Series, have a chance to win one, they have to trade Goldschmidt. They have to trade Goldschmidt. They have to get a lot in return for him, not necessarily major league ready players, but guys that are double-A, triple-A players that are good, that other team scouts have valued highly. I think that's the way the Cardinals have to go when they're evaluating talent now. Their people are incompetent. They can't evaluate their own talent. Why would we think they could evaluate other people's talent? So the Cardinals need to look at how other people value prospects and act accordingly. We'll see how they handle it. One never knows, right? One never knows. And in this day and age with the Cardinals and their goofy way that they handle their scouting department, who who the heck knows what's going on over there? I don't think they know. So we're glad we could bring you the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court Home this Monday afternoon. We're back fighting the good fight again for you in the morning. It's uh, 7 o'clock Central Time in the Monster Energy Drink, Window World, stl-cars.com, Kings Court. Don't forget, when you need that boost of energy, Monster Energy Drink is your answer. Why not enjoy the product that brings people together? Some of the greatest parties at sporting events are thrown by the Monster Energy people. They pursue victory. They bring out your best. If you want to be at the top of your game, the most badass energy drink on the planet is there for you. It's Monster Energy Drink. Unleash the beast in you. Get that energy. Get that focus, that push, that boost. I'm going to have one now. All right, back fighting the good fight again for you tomorrow morning. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everybody.